Hey, it's your Kali. What's up? Hey, y'all, what's up? You're about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, live music, booty bump and beats, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start five, four, three, two, one. Due to the coronavirus, the following show is being produced and broadcast by the Yolokali youth from their homes. So sit back, relax at home, and enjoy the show. Hello, hello everybody. Welcome to What's Up. And remember you are listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. My name is Nine. My name is Melissa. My name is Emmanuel. My name is Adrian. And in today's show, we will be talking all about Native American culture and law, family dynamics, and empowering women, all topics relevant in the book, The Roundhouse, which is what today's entire show will be all about. But what is The Roundhouse? The Roundhouse is a powerful book, award-winning author and Minnesota bookstore owner, Louise Edrich from North Dakota and is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa Indians. But why are we talking about The Roundhouse? Well, the reason we were talking about The Roundhouse is because it's part of the Big Read this year. And if you're wondering about what the Big Read is, well, it's a program which is part of the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, which is meant to broaden our understanding of the world, our communities, and ourselves through reading and sharing a good book, which is what we all did this year and other people did this year because uh, the Big Read and the National Endowment of the Arts were handing out copies of the book. And they were also having events, which sadly were canceled because of, you know, the coronavirus. But we still had a way to distract ourselves and get some reading in because we had this book. Definitely. So you'll be hearing all of that and so much more in today's show, even including some very special interviews with some special guests. But you'll just have to tune in all two hours to find out who they are. But in the meantime, we'll take a little song break, jam out, and we'll be right back. song break and that was Ibeyi. The song's name is Oya. If anyone is wondering 
Um, so yeah, back into what we are here for, which is the Roundhouse. And Melissa, I want to ask you, what were your first impressions of the Roundhouse when you like first started reading it? I mean, the style of writing is kind of like, I don't know how to put it. It's like very descriptive. Like there's a lot of metaphors and it describes it like very thoroughly. Like you could like describe a pen and it would like describe like every single part of a pen. I found that really interesting. So yeah, I, I really liked how um the descriptions were. Like they were very detailed and I could like kind of envision it. So yeah. Yeah, I agree. They were detailed, but I feel like it was also easy to keep up with and how you mentioned like envision what you're reading. But yeah, it caught me by surprise because initially I did not know what the book was about at all. So when I first started reading it, I was like, oh, okay, this is a little heavy. And it was definitely something that I didn't want to start reading at night. It was something that I preferred to read throughout the day and clear out my head a little bit just because it, it was that good and I didn't want to kind of sleep on that thought. But yeah, what do you all think about your initial thoughts, Adrian and Emmanuel? Well, I definitely had, I think, a different experience with the book than you guys did as like maybe small as it might seem. Uh, you guys read the book and I actually listened to the audiobook because I find myself, you know, focused. I... I started reading the book, you know, just reading. And then eventually I just needed to listen to the audiobook while I read it. Cause you know, I just like wanted, like when I was reading the book, I, you know, I dove in, like I, it would be like an hour or two and I would just like sit there listening and reading the book, like really wanting to comprehend it all. And definitely the experience of listening to it, you know, somebody reading it to you, it felt, you know, it just like the words spoke like more on different levels. Like, you know, I felt like I was actually there with, you know, not only how it's written with all the imagery and, you know, in-depth description of, you know, the conversations and the scenarios, but definitely somebody reading it to me, I was allowed at times, you know, just to like relax and close my eyes and, you know, just let my mind do all the thinking. So that was definitely what I experienced when listening to the book and reading. Yeah, it was a really good book. Yeah, I agree. I did like half and half because I had like a free trial or something. So I did a little bit of the audio. But yeah, as you mentioned, like I still wanted to have the book in front of me and it also helped me understand the appropriate language and pronunciation of some of the words that I wasn't familiar with and I think that was super helpful and it allowed me to give that respect to pronounce the things better yeah some of the language was a little bit hard for me particularly but yeah overall I think that I I was not expecting like the book to be to cover so much and how we talked about a little bit in the beginning that it covers topics like, you know, family dynamics and what goes on in the Native American cultures and laws and the reservations. And it just covered a lot where you kind of start getting awareness of these things that are happening, but also, you know, you're you're in here for like a, a sequential um, story. So I, th I thought that was pretty neat. What, what about you, Adrian? How What's your intake? Well, I thought it was a really beautifully written book. It definitely was really heavy and pretty different from what I'm used to reading but I think it kind of opened my eyes to a lot of other different kinds of books you know like I'm I've never really read anything like you know like Native American literature or anything that really dealt with Native American culture you know reading the book there was a lot of stuff that I didn't understand that led me to like research some stuff and I think it just like I didn't only learn about you know like Native American culture through the book but it also led me to learn a little bit more because of what I didn't understand from the book 
for sure. Definitely an educational read. What I would like to discuss more about is like, oh, or the aspects I like more about the book was like how the character and like other characters like were like in conflict with their moral issues and like how they would like encounter all of that. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And also, I feel like, you know, again, considering so many topics, I feel like the partnerships with this book was, you know, they were amazing, which was one of the main reasons why they also had some events um, planned out for this book for more people to know about it and be aware also about the big read. But unfortunately, like, you know, with the pandemic going on, the events were canceled. But we got to attend one event together at Steppenwolf Theater. And I thought that was really neat. So we were able to capture some audios from the readings. So that's going to be played throughout later on in the show. But yeah, I thought that that also how you mentioned earlier, the event, having someone read it to you and also being in like a public space, learning about some of these topics while there's people there, it did feel different because it's like conversations that people don't have every day. And also being around people who are part of the Native American community to be there present with us in the event was also pretty amazing. And did you guys attend any of the other Big Read events? Or was the Steppenwolf Theater the only event? The one I attended, the only one I attended was the Steppenwolf Theater. And it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we definitely had some more on the calendar, some more events, but yeah, they were canceled. And also the author didn't want to risk herself traveling through these times. So it's completely understandable. Yes, but definitely our event was not canceled. We are doing this radio show. So hopefully you are all enjoying from home. We are keeping the events alive. But yeah, so again, how this book covers a lot actually, and I think that we can dive into a lot of the dynamic in the family. I think that's one of the big things that was there for me that I noticed. And I feel like anyone can relate to the book in any aspect. Doesn't have to necessarily be the focus of the book, the you know, the main event. But in many ways, like I feel like we were all able to grasp onto a little bit of it and say, like, oh, I identify with this and can recall this in my community or so. I guess we can meet eye to eye with it in a way. Like, what was um, one of your, like, guys' favorite parts in the book? Well, definitely I enjoyed, I think that it just speaks on, like, my character or, like, who I am as a person. But I enjoyed all the, like, trouble that the main character, Joe, and all of his young friends got into. Like, there were some, like, little troublemakers. They were, like, always, like, creating mischief and, like... <laughs> They were like, they were crazy. And I can definitely relate to that spirit. Like, I enjoyed, you know, all the different um, scenarios where, you know, they would, they would maybe like mess with their neighbors or like, they just be doing crazy things. Let's not spoil the book here. But, you know, I definitely enjoyed reading those parts, the more lighthearted parts. It was fun to see that balance throughout the book. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to agree. There was a nice balance between the book where some parts were kind of funny. And yeah, I think the adventures of the younger folks in the book like had me like laughing at first. And then there was this one thing that they did, again, not to spoil the book, but it was it played an important part into the, the main scenario, which was what happened to Joe's mother, obviously. And they messed with something that was important towards that finding. And like, I was just like, 
why are these kids doing this right now? Like, you know, someone really needs this information. And I was just like, I couldn't read it. After that, I was like, I need to take a break because I'm actually a little bothered. <laughs> but yeah. Right. Somebody whoop their child. Somebody, somebody get your child home. It's the summertime. They should be studying. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. It, it, well, it started in the spring of 1988. So yeah, it definitely walks right through summer. So that's also yeah. taken into consideration. Like it is a book that takes place in the time of 1988. But again, a lot of those topics are still very relevant today. Very. And definitely something else that spoke to me with, you know, the main character, Joe, being so young and same with like all of his friends as, I guess, insignificant, I would say. Maybe like this young kid would seem in this situation that his mother is dealing with and the family and the community is dealing with. I definitely feel like it really speaks highly of youth and like, you know, I guess the young person, not in a sense being the hero of a story, you know, but having so much like pride and emotion and love for somebody as important as his mother, I definitely think that it was really beautiful to see that laid out with a character being so vulnerable that usually is seen as, you know, mischievous and, you know, just run around in the mud and stuff like that. Like it was really beautiful to see this young kid show so much um, sympathy and love for his mother and would do anything to, you know, get justice. Yeah, that definitely like hits the heart. We see that. And you're right. It, there's a lot of power in like the youth and their curiosity, I guess, also has a lot to do with it. But also like that actual genuine drive to want to know something and solve something. But um, yeah, we're definitely going to dive into more of those topics as we go along in the show. But as of right now, we're going to take a small song break, but we'll be right back and stay tuned because we have a lot more to cover in the next hour. Period. back guys all right so now we're going to be talking about native american culture and laws particularly those on uh, reservations so to start off the book talks a little bit about you know legends and folklore and in native american culture they typically believe you know that animals are you know important and we see this in the part where you know mushum has a dream and he's talking about like a buffalo and you know, this buffalo is very important because, it, you know, it, it kind of protects the protagonist of the story, which I feel like, you know, it kind of like that protagonist is kind of like Joe in the sense that, you know, he kind of needs some, you know, like protection from his mother who, you know, is kind of, you know, affected by, you know, the events that happen to her. I feel like compared to a lot of other like cultures and stuff like that, they respect, you know, 
animals and their the nature within their communities a lot more sure. and i feel like that kind of showed in the book yeah um just to clarify also mushroom is joe's grandpa and joe's basically the main character and basil is joe's father and geraldine is the mother which is also one of the main characters so just for our listeners to have a little bit of more clarification but yeah that's awesome i to- i totally agree that was very vivid in the book seeing part of that culture and their beliefs so yeah i thought that was that was important as well i like definitely did like the part of the symbolism with like a lot of like nature and like animals like it really like changed the meaning of how like the book was interpreted like what was happening to the mother and how like even though she was going through hardship like the folklore and the legends and like the what is it the metaphors of like animals really made her seem more powerful and even though she was going through stuff like it made her seem like she was like she was going to like come out like stronger and she was going to come out well so like it kind of foreshadowed or like it like made sure that everything was going on fine if that makes sense yeah you know Erdrich kind of like really beautifully wrote the book in a way that a lot of the metaphors if you didn't really pay attention to them they could get past you like one that really got past me until I you know kind of looked it up or I started researching about the book was um, at the beginning where it talks about uh, Basil, Joe's father, and Joe picking out the roots or the little like saplings, which were meant to represent the problems that were seeping into the Native American community on the reservation. And, you know, it was kind of like, it was really interesting. It was kind of mind-blowing that Erdrich did that because I didn't, I kind of just like read past it the first time. But when I went back and I read it, it kind of, you know, I kind of understood it a bit more and I kind of understood why she put it in there in the first place. Yeah, I feel like that's this is one of those books that you might want to read twice. So like the first one to just kind of get a feel of what the book is going to give you. But then like the second time around, you kind of dive in more with like an understanding of what you're reading. And yeah, how you mentioned, like it's so easy to miss some of the very important things because also like one's lack of awareness on the culture. And then but it actually this is a book that helped me like question some of the things that I was reading and want to understand more of like, why is this happening? Or, you know, and we, we couldn't see like one thing that I knew before reading this book is that in the community, in the Native American communities, there's a lot of lack of resources and support from the government and just basic mental health resources and stuff like that. So I was able to see how that plays off in an actual like family and how that affects a community through this book. So I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those that like, you want to go back to read it with more updated information or, you know, again, considering that it was, it took place in the late 1980s, but it's still very relevant to what's going on in 2020. And, you know, speaking of, like, you were talking about, like, the mental health resources and other, you know, other resources there. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, these Native American reservations um, lack. Like you said, you know, they ha- they don't have a lot of mental health assistance or help from the government. Like, there's little to no AA, like Alcoholics Anonymous, which helps with alcohol abuse or drug rehab or counseling or therapy for mental illness, which is something that helps, especially in these kinds of situations that happen in the book, because reservations tend to have higher was it, higher rates of aggravated assault. Like, there was this fact. So the rate of aggravated assault among American Indians and Alaska Natives is around twice as much as the country as a whole, which I thought was crazy. 
because a, a lot of these communities are, you know, kind of small or they're concentrated into like smaller pockets of the United States and being compared to the rest of the United States, it's it's a really big number. Yeah, it definitely is. And also, um, again, for the listeners, this book, the main scenario, it does focus around the rape of Geraldine, which is the mother, which is why this these topics are very important to cover amongst the community. And we, we will talk about a little bit of our topics um, throughout the show. So we will get into that in a bit. But um, as of now, we're going to go on uh, another small break. And um, remember that you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. And stay tuned. This is What's Up. And this is our The Roundhouse Show with the Big Beat. Did you know you can now stream Lumpen Radio on your favorite internet connected devices? Just say, hey, Alexa, play WLPN. Lumpen Radio from TuneIn. And don't forget, you can take us with you anywhere you go. Download our app in the App Store. Lumpen Radio. Make all your robots play us. Hey, it's Mede. How are we doing during this quarantine? How are we all feeling? Just want to check up on everyone. Has everyone been washing their hands, keeping themselves clean, and not going outside too much? I just wanted to give you all a friendly reminder that we need to keep ourselves healthy, safe inside of our homes as much as possible, and try to wash your hands often, like we should. Some steps you can follow to wash your hands are to first rinse your hands with water and add hand soap or alcohol-based rub. Then wash your palms. Second, wash the back of your hands. Third, scrub in between your fingers. After, move on to your fingertips. Lastly, do not forget to scrub your entire thumb to make sure you're washing your hands long enough. You can sing that one song that we all sing in birthday parties. The happy birthday song, two times. Please go out only if you truly have to, like for groceries, pharmacy runs, or other necessities or emergencies. Do not go out with groups of people or to crowded spaces. Keep yourself distant. Although we are limited to go outside, you can still take your pets for walks or sit outside by yourself. So please do your part and try to have fun. Most importantly, do not forget to smile. Hello, everybody. What's up? So throughout the book, Joe, the main character, goes to stay. And in the house, one of his family members, Musham, his grandfather, lives there and has these dreams where he talks out loud and says everything that happens throughout his dreams and Joe can hear. So I will be reading a little excerpt from his dreams. Many people were saved by that old woman, Buffalo, who gave herself to Nanapush and his unkillable mother. Nanapush himself said that whenever he was sad over the losses that came over and over through his life, his grandmother, Buffalo, would speak to him and comfort him. This Buffalo knew what had happened to Nanapush's mother. She said Windigo justice must be pursued with great care. A place should be built so that people could do things in a good way. She said many things, taught Nanapush, so that as he lived on, Nanapush 
was to become wise in his idiocy. And now we will be moving on and listening to an interview with Frankie, who is an artist, activist, and teaching artist. She currently works with the American Indian Center of Chicago as their communications and campaigns coordinator and is a member of Shy Nations Youth Council. Let's listen. Hello, everybody. We have a very special guest here with us today. Hello, Frankie. How are you? I am really good. I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with us. We're so happy and excited that you're here with us today. We just have a few questions regarding a few different topics, and we're just going to start talking a little bit about your experience with theater and using that as a form of expression. So first, I want to ask, how did you get involved with theater? Surprisingly, I got into theater at like a really young age. And I think with a lot of theater artists, you start with like doing like a community production of like a musical or something like that. And it slowly goes from like, oh, yeah, I want to go into musical theater. And then I was like, oh, I want to go into like acting. And then I ended up going to school for directing and playwriting. And I had a lot of amazing teachers who, you know, I was always between going into like theater and going into like political science and going more like the activist route. And I had so many amazing teachers who told me that, that you can really do both, you know, that there, you can like say so much doing art um, and that, you know, you wanting to uh, do good and help your community isn't necessarily mutually exclusive with you wanting to be like, wanting to do theater and wanting to do art. So that's kind of where I started, you know, you started one musical and it really hooked me. And then, you know, here I am many, like what, 10 or 12 years later, I have a, my degree in theater, you know, and I have to do cool projects like uh, what you guys saw at Seven Wolf. So moving closer into more present time, I want to ask a bit about your collaboration with the Steppenwolf Theater recently and the whole live reading and acting out excerpts of the book, The Roundhouse. How did you get into communication with the theater and how did this collaboration come to life? I think it's really funny. So... A lot of the, like, I think this word of, like, decolonization and, like, to decolonize is kind of a buzzword going on right now. And so many people want to do, like, especially, like, theaters, like, places where they do, like, big events. This trend of doing a land acknowledgement has, like, popped up in recent years of, of like, land acknowledgement meaning, like, recognizing, like, the ancestral homelands that you're on, you know, and that's starting to become kind of trendy. And, like, my issue with that is that, Land acknowledgement. We get to the point of being like, oh, should we do a land acknowledgement? Should we do a land acknowledgement? It's like, yes, but like part of like decolonization and part of land acknowledgements is acknowledging that you acknowledging the relationship that you have with the indigenous people of this land, right? So it's like this land acknowledgement means nothing if you aren't actively trying to create, like trying to uplift and create um, connections with the native people who live in your area. Then that like that means nothing. So. Steppenwolf and like, like a lot of cool people work there. They really wanted to do a land, they want to start incorporating land acknowledgements in between or before a lot of their performances. And um, they were reaching out to us because they were like, we know that we just don't want this to be like, oh, yes, we want to help you with this land acknowledgement. And then, or you help us with this land acknowledgement and then like never talk to you again. Uh, they were like, we want this to be a continuous relationship that we build with like the native community here. And I was like, oh, awesome. Like, this is what, uh, this is what doing land acknowledgement and doing this kind of work means. So there's so many cool people who work there and 
they were originally in contact with one of my coworkers and they kept talking about theater stuff. My coworker knows I'm theater. I have a degree in theater. And they were like, you know, you guys should be talking to Frankie. Like, I don't really know what you guys are talking about. I don't know what any of this means. So I met with um, the edu- one of the education coordinators and we have a bunch of mutual friends because the theater community is pretty small. I told him what I was interested in. Um, and he was like, oh, do you want to work on this? This like seems right up your alley. Do you want to work on this project? Do you know people who would want to be in this? Because we need native people to be in it. And I was like, yes, I want to be in it. Yes, I know people. Like, let's like do it. And so that's kind of how that worked. It just kind of started with them uh, doing like good work, you know, and being like, we want to build relationships like with the community here. And then that just kind of came to fruition. That's awesome. I have a question. So were you able to pick your own character to perform? No. So our director, she was really great. She didn't really go in thinking like, oh, I'm going to cast this as this, this and this. Like the first day we all got there and we would just trade off like because we were, we were just reading the the pages from the book. We weren't like we didn't make them really into lines yet. We were just reading. And so she basically just had us switch all of us, like all four of us off every paragraph and just kind of got a, a feel for like what we all sounded like. And then eventually, like as we went on, she was like, oh, I think I see you more as like a this character. And we kind of ended up building the character around that. But before going in, we were just kind of like, let's just uh, let's just see how this goes. You know, we have four people, four very different actors. Like, let's see like where everyone kind of fits. That's awesome. And how did you prepare yourself to act out the parts of Geraldine? For me, because this piece like dealt with a lot of like trauma and heavy subjects, I really tried to focus on like, I feel the beautiful parts of her character. You know, there was one part in like one of the monologues that just talked about like, I think like the joy of Native women, you know, and I think like that is like the parts where I focus on because like, you know, the trauma parts like where those can be kind of hard. But like, I think to prepare for this role, like I really wanted to focus on like, the beauty of like native women and the beauty of like a strong matriarch because I think like that's a lot of what the bigger text is about you know the roundhouse is about this theme of like the matriarch and like what do you do when they like can't necessarily like take on their role at that time and again with like a lot of pieces like on this subject of like missing indigenous women and like violence against native women like we're kind of like bombarded with that like those statistics like all the time so I really did want to focus on like the beauty and the fun of like that role you know so yeah that that one I think there was like it was really only like one paragraph but it really talked about like like the beauty of like native women it described her just like laughing with her friend and like laughing so hard that it can be kind of like ugly and like snorting and just kind of that like joyous part of it because I think that like one moment of joy I think helped propel me kind of through the rest of the piece even when it got heavy you know So, like, one of, like, my biggest questions is, like, what was your takeaway from participating in this? And, like, especially with the role you were given when you were reading, like, what was, like, the biggest thing you learned about that? My biggest takeaway, I think, was, yeah, you, from from the biggest takeaway from this piece, and I think, like, me doing this piece also happened at, like, a weird time. I was going through a bunch of, like, really heavy, like, personal things. And I think one thing my director said was how do you like navigate the new normal, you know? And like, that was like a theme throughout this book. I feel it was a theme throughout the excerpts that we chose. How, how do you navigate the new normal when like trauma happens, you know, because you kind of are forever changed after that. And so I think that pairing with like, um, 
a lot of the personal issues I was going on, going on with like outside of this going on at the same time, I thought really, really hit home, uh, really hit close to home. And I think that's something that I've even found months after that I returned to. It's like, okay, after things like heavy things happen after like you experience a traumatic event, like how do you navigate the new normal? And so I, I find myself, and like I find myself other people who are kind of going through it right now because we're all kind of going through it right now. I find myself quoting that and quoting my director and being like, you know, in these uncertain times, like how, how do you navigate the new normal? Because we're kind of, things have shifted, you know, even from a worldview, like we're in a, we're kind of in a crisis right now. Uh, and I don't think things will ever go back to normal, you know? So how do you, how do you navigate the new normal? So that's something that I really took away as something that like, is like a theme that, was really present, I think, in the text, as well as like super relevant, I think, like now. Another thing, like the biggest takeaway was it's crazy seeing like Native people like at big institutions like that. So even though like we weren't like on like a main stage or whatever to like, not just like be up on a stage with other Native people, but just to be able to like tell like part of like, you know, I think our stories, like not necessarily like our personal story, but like stories of, of our people was really, really powerful and important. You know, I think something in the talk back that I mentioned, I was like, you know, the amount of times people have been like, oh, I didn't know you people still existed. And it's like, <laughs> I'm here living and breathing. Like we all have like, you know, these tribes and like families, like we're all still here. So I think that was something that I took away. It was like, just like representation and just like being native in front of people is like, is helpful and like really needed well like acknowledging your like your activism and like how passionate you are on these issues like how did you become involved with um the american indian center it's crazy so i ended up getting involved the indian center just because on a whim it was i always like to tell people the story just because it's so random how i ended up there but i play rugby i or i played rugby when i was in college and i experienced like this really bad injury, like I had like a really bad sprain in my ankle would put me on crutches for a couple months because like all my friends were like busy playing rugby and I couldn't go do anything. And all my other theater friends were doing productions. Like I was just bored at home. And like one day I saw that they were looking for an intern to advocate for get out the native vote. So getting native people out voting for the midterm, 2018 midterm elections. And I was like, oh, that's like something I'm totally interested in. You know, I've been looking for a way into the American Indian Center and like into the community for a while because I'm not from Chicago. And you know how it can be hard. Like you don't know anyone and you're just kind of, you show up to events and you're just kind of like, hi, and you just kind of sit in the corner alone. So that was like kind of where I was at. And I thought, oh, if I do this internship, one, it's something that I'm interested in. And two, then I'll have my in in the community, you know. And so I like the joke that's like, oh, yeah, I called them up. I applied. They called me back that day and they were like, you've got the internship. Do you want to start tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, sure. And um, I just joked that I like never left. You know, even after my internship ended, I just did a, I just stood around there. I was there just to hang out or do volunteer work and things like that. And then eventually I graduated college and they were like, hey, we got funding for like, you know, a new position. Do you want to like apply for that? And I was like, yeah. And then eventually after like an interview and everything, they were like, oh yeah, like we'd like to like hire you. And I was like, great. Cause I was already spending all my time here anyway. You know, it'd be nice to get paid for my work. So that's kind of how I ended up doing that. And then I think I, I think I grappled with it because I technically graduated with a degree in theater. So I did feel weird going into like more like nonprofit work, but like it feels right where I'm at because like I'm able to work for my community. I'm able to like meet more native people and meet more native like artists, especially like going to the Indian Center. I've met so many other like there's not a lot of us, 
but there's enough like native theater artists, you know? And I'm like, bro, we got to collab or something, you know, like let's like write a play or like, let's like write a short film and do that. So I think that has been, it's been fulfilling my, my need to like give back for like community and like do like a lot of like activism work as well as like, I've met a lot of cool people, especially like theater connections through this as well. So yeah, that's kind of my little journey, my random journey. If I never sprained my ankle, I never would be like <laughs> around the community. Um, who knows if I'd still be in Chicago. So I like to think about that and laugh. <laughs> and so what would you say is the importance of groups like these keeping indigenous representation alive in the community and like, different activist centers like this that are doing that oh my god the indian center is important and like groups like this are so important for so many reasons like if you go to any major city there's like a native center there's an indian center somewhere there just because at this point like 70 percent of native people live in, in um in urban settings you know and the challenge of that is that we're often like overlooked you know people don't People don't know that we still exist. You know, it's like a lot of the time, like many of us don't look visibly native. So it's kind of hard. So to have this space where we can like gather and just like be like native together is like really, really important. Not just for our own sake, just because I feel like native people were such a community based people, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like community is really all we have. It's, it's, it's really important to have that space for us, but then also to be able to like come together and get the representation that we need. Because at the end of the day, it's like if people don't know that we exist, we're not going to get funding and resources that like we need. And so to be able to like come together in a lot of like in a lot, in a lot of different ways, like we have like plenty of like dancers and like we also have like a, a drum group called Redline that I also am a part of. Like we go out and we go to these cultural events and other things. We go to these powwows and like be able to get like a name for ourselves just because people really don't know, especially urban Indians, like no one really knows like that urban natives like really exist. So to be able to have that for us and then also be able to like bring us together to get like bigger representation from like, I feel like the city is really, really important just because we're already so underrepresented already. Going off of that, do you feel that indigenous indigenous community have been better represented in the U.S. more in recent times? Like, do you think the representation has shifted? I definitely think it's shifted. I don't think it's anywhere where it like needs to be because I mean, like at the end of the day, like, and again, this is the controversial like topic across like the Native community. But like, in my opinion, it's like we're still living in a society where we're the only people we like that they, we can base like mascots off of, you know, like we're still like we still live in Chicago that has like the Blackhawks, you know, that like that, like at the end of the day, like because again, this is kind of I always like to preface this where it's like not all Natives feel the same way about mascots. Some people like them. Some people don't. I personally don't. But I mean, at the end of the day, like research has shown that like white people feel better about themselves when they see native mascots. So the idea of like mascots, the, regardless of how you feel on them, feed into white supremacy, which doesn't like, <laughs> it doesn't really help anyone, you know? And so we have like a long way to go, but we see like people, the like, Cleveland Indians, right? They're like a baseball team. They changed their mascot because their mascot was a little racist. But at the same time, we, we still see teams like the Washington Redskins, which like Redskin is a slur. 
and that's a major football team, you know? So like, yeah, we've made like little bits of progress, um, but we still have like a long way to go. I'm like personally just tired of like what feeds into us people not thinking that we exist anymore is that the only time you see us represented is when we're placed in the historical past. You only ever see us in headdresses with bow and arrows riding a horse. You know, you don't see modern contemporary versions of us, um, which feeds into this idea that like we don't exist anymore. We're something of the past, which is like far from the truth. So these, these mascots, again, some people like see them as representation and we love to be represented, but at the end of the day, it puts, it places us in the historical past at the end. Research has shown that one, when native native youth feel bad about themselves when they see these things, um, and also uh, like it, white people feel better when they see these things. Like so, at the end of the day, depending on if you're offended or not, it feeds into white supremacy, um, which doesn't benefit anyone uh, <laughs> except for white people. Um, but yeah, so we just it's there's a long way to go. Um, but I think with this trendiness of like land acknowledgements that we're seeing, um, that's like, and that's like the first step is like bringing it like before, before we can like decolonize or whatever, like the first step in that is acknowledging that like the land that you occupy, you know, um, and acknowledging like the settler colonial state. So that's like the first step and that's becoming trendy right now. So like, that's like a good sign, but we still have like ugh, a long way to go. <laughs> Going on with, like, the representation, like, what is the, like, the importance of literature and art, like, like how the roundhouse provides already, like, what's a good interpretation and, like, representation of that? Yeah, because it places, like, first things first, it places us in a semi-contemporary lens, you know? I think the roundhouse took place in technically in, like, the 80s or something, so not super contemporary, but it, like, shows us in a way that's like not on like horseback with like a headdress on um and it portrays us as like real people um and i think just like doing things like that where it's like yeah i think like teaching like the history part in schools is important like yeah so let's learn about history whatever um but i think in doing so partnering it with like contemporary native literature is like equally as important because i think it can be detrimental to just teach us in the past you know and there are so many amazing like native writers and artists like louise she has a million like great books i wasn't even really aware of the roundhouse that much before i worked on this she has so many other amazing books there are so many other amazing contemporary native writers uh, so i think it's really important for people especially like i'm talking about like school and curriculum wise to not only teach like history but pairing it with like like something contemporary like the roundhouse or like one of her other books or like the million of other native books that place us like in real time, you know, because it's dangerous just to teach us in the past, you know. Do you feel that the situation within the book is something that happens often in native reservations, particularly like the miscommunication between American officials and the government officials outside of the reservation? Oh, I think this happens all the time. I think that's why this is an important book. I think this would be a great book to um, to like introduce into like curriculum when you're talking about Native people because it talks about a lot of like contemporary Native issues, right? So like the first like contemporary Native issue I think is like violence and like abuse against like Native women, right? Like so we're talking about the missing and murdered Indigenous women like epidemic where it's like 
I think like over 50 something percent of like, I think even more, I think even like over 60% of native women will experience violence in their life. And like native women are 10 times more likely to experience violence in their life, you know? And like, we're talking, if we look at all of the victims of like trafficking, like native women make up like 50% of like sex trafficking victims, despite the fact that we are 1% of the population. Um, So that and, that and that ties into like a lot of issues of just violence that people don't even know. It's like I, t- I say these statistics and people are like, oh, I had no idea. And it's because so many of like our stories are just kind of sweeped under the rug. And it has a lot to deal with like, like tribal politics as well. And like tribal politics versus like, you know, U.S. politics, you know, when it comes to like police. It's like so many of our women go missing. And because of these these loops that you have to jump in and these like these different rules that you have to follow is like, they're often not found, you know? So I think it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's like, you know, the statistics about this is like really crazy. And like, you know, if you look up MMIW, Missing Word Indigenous Women, like there are so many, so many, so many stories. Um, And it's crazy because like of all like women who go like missing and like native women make up a majority of them, despite the fact that we're 1% of the population. So it's really crazy. And like this story, it's like happens all the time. Like, Really, if you haven't personally experienced something like this, you are only maybe a degree, one or two degrees away from of separation away from someone who has. You know, if it's not, if you haven't experienced this, like you have like an auntie or a grandmother or like a friend who has, and like that's just the reality in our communities, you know. And a lot of these, like, are a lot of these like perpetrators, they aren't native, you know, they're na- they're non-native people coming into our communities. So these are like very, very real things that happen in our community. It's they're really real, the real fears that we all as like native women have. And so, yeah, I think, I don't remember what your initial question was. I've kind of gone on a tangent, but these topics are like with tribal police versus like the state police, like these happen all the time. It's a lot of the time reasons why our women are never found. It's a lot of the reasons why like so many of these cases go unsolved is because like the politics between like both like nations, you know, like the U.S. and like whatever tribal, like sovereign tribal nation. Yeah, it's you have to jump through hoops. And like, I think it's it's realistically because like we live in a settler colonial state. We're living in a state that isn't here to serve us that doesn't really care if our people are found or not. And that's kind of like the reality of it. And that's why I think like this book is important because it talks about like, like, like tribal politics when it comes to like police and like tribal police and non-tribal police. And when it talks about natives and non-natives, it talks about the legality of it, um, but also tackling like really, really real issues that like everyone in like our community is like, is, is affected by realistically. Thank you. That was amazing. And yeah, that definitely answered the question. So I have another question also going off of that. You said some really good information, and I think it's really important. In your opinion, how do you think we can create more awareness or dialogue about these topics happening, especially here in Chicago, again, going off of the land acknowledgement? Mm -hmm. Honestly, like my biggest thing is like, like, do whatever you can to like support like Native people. Even if that means like either like donating or just like when we know when we're not like in a global pandemic and all go to the Indian Center, like go to a native space and just like like meet and talk to native people, you know, like simple things like that. Like I always tell people, it's like if you want like a a good idea, like what like like the community is like go to a powwow, like 
we have a lot of them. Like, you know, we, especially the AIC, we have our big annual one every fall. And it's like, you know, it's not very, it's like, you know, it's like the price of like a movie ticket you would go. And it's like really fun and cool. And if you just want a better like idea of like, like native people, like, yeah, like go to, like, go to Pabba, they're open to everyone, you know? Um, and just like do what you can to like, I think just educate yourself on this, these type of topics. Like you could easily Google what, what you can tell what like land that you're on, you know, like what ancestral land that you're on. Like that's where it really starts. And then again, if you like this idea of like, decolonization is like about like building relationships like with the native people of this land and like what does it look to like coalition build between different communities of color you know like that's something that I've really been focusing on um because a lot of my job I'm advocating for the 2020 census right now and like a lot of our our different communities like deal with the same issues you know like especially with like minorities and communities of color it's like the government like wants to miscount us and doesn't want us to get as many resources as like we just like deserve, you know, we go, we have some of the biggest margins of being miscounted every census. So because of that, I was like, what does that mean to build coalitions between communities of color? Because we're all facing these issues, right? And so looking at it like that and just trying to build like relationships with the native people, like we have a garden, the First Nations garden. When again, when we're not in a pandemic, we have garden work days. Like it's totally fine to like show up and like help us garden and like build a relationship to the land. Cause I think that is also a process of decolonization is building your relationship to the land. And like, yeah, I think there's like so many things you could do, but a lot of it is just like, like not like trivializing us and just like, I don't know, go to a powwow, go to the garden, like talk with and like talk and just hear native people's stories. I think is like where it starts. So like, just to finish this off, like why should others choose to read the roundhouse or like, particularly like that certain book? I think The Roundhouse is one, just a beautifully written book, but I also think that it goes over just so many contemporary Native issues. You know, it, it like puts us in, um, and not the historical past, it places us kind of like in the present-ish. And it talks about real issues where although this was like, I think technically placed in the 80s, is still very much issues that we're facing right now you know about like tribal policies about like you know police and non-tribal police and like about like violence against native women i think these are like super huge issues and i think it's a great way like like, i think this book tackles it all it's like hard to read sometimes but i think it tackles it all like really like beautifully in in some ways so i definitely think it's like worth the read because you you learn so much about like like the legal political part of it but then also like they're very very like real and kind of like hard part that is like many of ours like realities you know hey guys what's up you are listening to wlpn lp chicago 105.5 fm lumpen radio broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes and we are back to the roundhouse show now i will read another little excerpt from the book the roundhouse and at this point Joe, the son, and their father are trying to find justice for their mother. My mother cooked all the next week and even made it outside, where she sat on a fried lawn chair, scratching Pearl's neck, staring into choke cherry bushes that marked the boundaries of the backyard. My father spent as much time home as possible, but he still called to finish out some of his responsibilities. He was also meeting daily with the tribal police 
and talking to the federal agent who was assigned to the case. One day, he traveled to Bismarck and back to talk to the U.S. attorney, Gabar Olson, an old friend. The problem was most Indian rape cases was that even after there was an incident, the U.S. attorney often declined to take the case to trial for one reason or another, usually a raft of bigger cases. My father wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. You know, well, I guess the events in, you know, the events that happened in the book kind of forced Joe to grow up. I mean, that's something that we can all agree on. You know, Joe was 13 years old at the time. But after these events, we can kind of see him kind of transition from, you know, being a young child to kind of taking on a very more mannish role, I guess you could say. He takes it upon himself to try and find, you know, who did this to his mom. And I think it's not only, you know, him. It You can also see it, like, in his friends who are kind of see him, seeing him struggle with, you know, facing the situation that his mom is in. Do you guys have any thoughts about, like, you know, Joe and him being forced to grow up? Yeah, actually, right after that section that Emmanuel just read, it talks about a little bit about how Joe starts working with his father to basically partner up and for them to work on their own on the case and how he gets paid a dollar to bike to his father's office and help out with like the the case and i think that that goes to show how you just mentioned like he was 13 at that time and like also understanding like the trauma or the event that happened with his mother and also just knowing that like you know the one thing on his mind is yes i need to help my father and we need to find out who did this and yeah, we see throughout the book that that main idea just kind of like leads him to start exploring different things and starts growing up in different ways and discovering, I guess, the reality of some situations and specifically in his community in the reservation. Mm, yeah. And I mean, there's not only that kind of thing that happened with, you know, the mom being uh, assaulted. There was also kind of like you could see how the mom was the one who was, you know, like the pillar uh, of the family. She was the one kind of holding them together. You know, like, they they kind of relied on the mother for, like, a lot. She would cook and clean and everything. But after, you know, after everything happened, um, they were they kind of became kind of like a mess, along with the fact that they were trying to, you know, help resolve the case. Do you guys have anything, like, any opinion about, like, that strong parental presence that um, the mom kind of had throughout the book? Yeah, I think that the book also neatly expresses that and very like it, like vividly it doesn't try to hide the fact that like yes the males in this household are kind of like falling apart not only just trying to figure out the case but also trying to live a different lifestyle now that the mother is taking different ways to heal you know taking time and just staying in her room and obviously not being very present in the household and you know it, it also the book emphasizes that it is also taking a toll on Joe and his father as like a, as a whole and you know I think they also start reflecting a lot on like the simple moments that they took for granted um and how like the mom was very easygoing in certain situations like if a mistake happened in the kitchen you know they would all laugh it out but like now the mother's laugh and voice was absent in the space and they were like very much able to feel that. So yeah, and I think that not right now, but in a couple of minutes, we're going to listen to a very powerful audio that touches up on that specific part that the woman, the mother is 
one of the most important pieces of the structure of family for them in particularly. And I mean, I think, you know, here, like us in the Latino community, I think that's also something that's very important. I think we do rely a lot on our mothers and they're kind of like, they have a very central role, you know, in our lives. I would also say like, I like how the book doesn't like choose to hide it or like follow any like stereotypical, like misogynistic, like ideals going on to that where like they blatantly like say the mom was like the leader of their family. The mom was the one who controlled everyone and told everyone what to do. And she was like, the main one that everyone looked up to. And once like her um, facing any hardship, like could tear down a family and could like affect anyone of them in the family. So I really like how those aspects changes and like really brings up how like important it is to have like, um, like a maternal figure in your family. Yeah, I think one other thing that I also noticed is the family structure of Joe's family was not only important to them, but also to Joe's friends. Because I remember this one particular part in the book where like they mentioned that if this event hadn't happened, that Joe and his friends could have easily just gone to Joe's house for snacks and just to chill. But like it wasn't a regular day where they can just do that and go and just eat all the food in Joe's house because they had to be more considerate of the situation and like um that kind of puts me to think too like in our communities like it's often seen that there's that one family that kind of is there for like an entire group of friends and that's like the household that kind of looks out for that group of friends and I feel like that was also seen here that like not only was the family directly interrupted but also their peers around them and how they were certain people trying to come in and be there for the family but there was like only so much that they can do emmanuel do you have any thoughts on this like you know the you know the role that the mom played here in the book it was definitely throughout there would be you know not necessarily flashbacks but more so talk about how how like the family dynamic and the whole like vibe was before the mother's incident before her rape and then after and definitely the book started more so like after the incident and we just got to see life and the whole family structure and dynamics after the incident and how everybody was either trying to find relief or you know get over it or if they were trying just like you know how everybody's standpoint was and viewpoint after the whole situation. So I definitely saw that in the book and throughout, not only obviously the victim, the mother, but also, you know, the father, the the son, and also all of his friends and the community around them. So, you know, aunts and uncles and community leaders, like everybody played a different role in the whole situation. And definitely some like acted better than others or reacted but definitely it was you know common uh, throughout the book that everybody you know had like respect for the whole situation and I think dealed with it in a good way so yeah I saw that in the book I think you bring up a really good point on how the book did start picking up like after the incident so basically all that we know about like the family dynamic before we learned through like the flashbacks or the comments of like okay now this is missing in the in this current time and that's how we were able to kind of formulate what was happening before the incident so I think that's a really good point 
Yeah, and the book also, I see, used a lot of, like, specific scenarios and imagery, like, things like where, you know, Joe and the the book starts with Joe and his dad picking weeds from the side of the house and something as simple as, you know, yard work and garden work is seen throughout the book to have changed something that the family, you know, would do specifically the mother, Geraldine, she really was, you know, into yard work and gardening. And that's something that shifts after the incident. And you can see that she no longer is, I guess, making that a priority and sees more taking time to herself for self-reflection and healing as a priority. And you can see that shift throughout the book. Yeah, definitely. I think this ties in into what I'm about to say, ties in into the next topic of like going more into women and domestic violence. But I have a question for you all. Do you think that the mother Geraldine was actually given time, like considerably time to heal? Or do you guys think that she has a little pressure to speak about what happened to her just for the sake of resolving the case? Like, how do you guys feel about that? Considering that she did go through a trauma and, you know, she has to heal, but then there's questions that need to be answered. Like, what do you guys think about how that paid off? Well, I thought it was kind of, you know, they were kind of trying to rush, like, her own, like, healing process. And I think that they were trying to do that partially through that. It seemed like, you know, like, the gardening. Like, Joe, he was trying to plant flowers for her and stuff like that. And it seemed like at times he would get aggravated at the fact that she was kind of, you know, stuck in a very dark place. So I think that even though there was a lot of points where they were very considerate of her situation. There was also a lot of points where they ended up trying to, you know, rush her and get her out of the room and, you know, try and get her over this without really considering the fact that this was a really traumatic thing for her. Yeah, I think like I, I was indecisive at first. I'm not going to like, I was like, at first I was like, yeah, they're definitely giving her her time because they're understanding that she can't piece herself together at the moment. And then I started thinking like, well, you know, there really isn't a right time to, you know, try and figure it out. And that's when I started thinking, like, I do feel like they're pressuring her. But then I do see how that pressure, like, just kind of rushed things after that, like, just to get them going to where they needed to get. But I also think that it was very valid, the amount of time that she took for her to come out and be able to, you know, have more conversations, like, with her visitors and, and particularly, like, opening up to like Joe about this one particular piece of information he had that he had to confess to his father. I feel like in a way that part made me feel like, oh, you just betrayed your mother. But then also like it's very essential to like help her healing and, you know, make justice to the whole situation. And, you know, yeah, just considering that. Yeah. And I do see in the book, I think that, you know, it's all about like the person and, you know, you taking as much time to yourself as you need because at the end of the day it's you in the book I do kind of think that them maybe rushing it a bit or in a way pressing her a tiny bit maybe did benefit her healing process because as hard as it was I do think that it helped her to find some sort of like have some sort of release of whatever emotion she was feeling I think that them pressuring her a bit actually helped to make her healing process go a bit faster because, you know, 
it's hard, but after it happens, you know, there's less, I guess, conversations that need to be had or like, you know, it just sped up her healing process. I think I saw that in the book. Like, I think that it did help. Yeah, definitely. That's, you know, it, it depends on the case, you know, healing is different for everyone. And, you know, like in real life, healing can be completely a different order for somebody else that's going through it. So we're definitely going to go into that a little bit more in a bit, but we're going to go ahead and listen to a clip, an audio clip from Stefan Wolf Theater at the event that we attended. And this clip talks a little bit about that absence of a mother in a home, kind of talks about it in the book. So let's go ahead and listen to that. Gone to her sister Clemence's house to visit afterwards. Mom would have returned by now to start dinner. We both knew that. Women don't realize how much store men set on the regularity of their habits. We absorb their comings and goings into our bodies, their rhythms into our bones. Our pulse is set to theirs. And as always, on a weekend afternoon, we were waiting for my mother to start us ticking away on the evening. And so, you see, her absence stopped time. What What should we we do? do? We both, we both said, said it once. once, which was again upsetting, but at least my father seemed to me unnerved and took charge. Let's go find her, he said. And then, even then, as I threw on my jacket, I was glad that he was so definite. Find her, not just look for her, not search. We would go out and find her. The cars had a flat, he declared. She probably drove someone home and the cars had a flat. These damn roads. We'll walk down and borrow your uncle's car and go find her. Find her. Again. I strode along beside him. He was quick and still powerful once he got going. He had become a lawyer, then a judge, and also married late in life. I was a surprise to my mother, too. My old Mushum called me Oops. That was his nickname for me. (laughs) And unfortunately, others in the family found it funny, so I am sometimes called Oops to this very day. (laughs) We went down the hill to my aunt and uncle's house, a pale green HUD house covered and sheltered by cottonwood and gentrified by three small blue spruce trees. Hello. So that was a a small short clip that we were able to get from the theater. And I feel like this clip was, it was small, but it was very detailed about just recognizing what's happening during like a moment at dinner and realizing that, you know, the environment is just different in the house at the moment. So I I think that clip was small, but it was, it was very meaningful. But yeah, so continuing with the conversation of the event that happened to Geraldine, which was the, the rape assault and how we were just talking about how healing is different for everyone and unfortunately like it's something that is very common in native american reservations and in our communities as well yeah melissa do you want to go into that a little bit so like during the book i was like noticing also that and also just like factually just like going around is like there's a lot of more like domestic violence cases or like rape or assault cases and reservations and like compared to like the whole country so that is very like that is very eye-opening to make sure, like, that there's a lot of injustices that are going on in the reservations and how, like, the government really doesn't take care of what's going on and doesn't really go on to solve the issue. So going on, there's also, like, 
there's like basic statistics this is like specifically for um native american women but like just in general that like nearly three in ten women and one in ten men in the u.s have experienced rape or physical violence or have been stalked by a partner or reported to impact their like functioning so that's like that's also a big amount so that means i add three in every ten women and that obviously is very like you should be alerted by that and then one in four women age 18 or older in the United States have been victim of severe physical violence by partner in their lifetime. So that is also something that should be taken, like, not with a grain of salt. It should be taken really seriously with that. If going on to the topic of a woman, like, how do you guys feel like women were portrayed in the book? That's a good question. I feel like, you know, as we're talking about it now, I also come to the realization that Geraldine's wasn't the only like situation that we saw, but also I think how you pronounce it is Sanja. She was she also faced a situation where she was domestically abused. So I feel like necessarily like women were in my perspective were portrayed things are actually happening in communities where like something happens, um, there can be a lash out and a woman can suffer for it. So I, I think that's also pretty important in the book where it's one of those things that it's not, it's touching on it and showing us like the reality of the situation without just focusing on that. But yeah, what, do, what is your intake on it, Adrian and Emmy? I guess it's kind of like the same as you. You know, it's really focused around Geraldine and her assault, but you know, there's also other points where we see that other women were either like abused or assaulted. There was, um, there, but there was another girl that was with Geraldine at the roundhouse. My love, yeah. Well, her, you know, she was also assaulted, I think, by, and, yeah, by Lyndon, and she ended up having a child. And then, of course, there was Geraldine, and there was also Sanja. So, although there is kind of like that, you know, positive, like, you know, women are have a very central role. They're very important to the family. There's also kind of like to some people, it seems like they're kind of more like objects in in the book. Or, you know, they don't see... It seems like to some people that they're not as important in the book. I don't know if you get what I mean. No, yeah. I agree with that. Also, like, going on with the topic, yes, like, Geraldine, for example, is suffering through, like, a traumatic event. Something that is, like, literally life-scarring. But it's also important, like, to acknowledge how, like, other people are coping with it. Yeah, that have been, like, how to be, like, a good, like, aid for someone who is going through something. So, for example, like, how hard the family, like um, Joe and his father, tries to like stabilize the environment, make sure that the mom is like in a safer environment. And I think that's important to like know how to how to how should a family stabilize or like work around an issue when having like a family member face such a traumatic event. So I think that's really important like to take in consideration. Yeah, for sure. I feel like the the book really shows the importance and like power that the mother figure has with this family and i think a lot of people reading can relate to that the me that maybe you know can pass some people up but you know just what a mother figure in your life embodies and what that what that gives to you as a person growing up and how that can add to you as a person as a character and can you know, really just show endless love. And similar to what Melissa is saying, I do think that it, it's a great job of showing, you know, how um, the family, not only, you know, the 
the victim, the mother, but how the family can support and, you know, have that person's back in that situation where it shows that, you know, they provided nothing but love for Geraldine. And, you know, it was shown as awkward at times. And, you know, they definitely struggled in some situations where there was confrontations and hard but needed conversations in the family. And you can definitely see that shift that the mother had. But I definitely think it was a great example of how family can love one another and, you know, show their support endlessly, especially for somebody that has done nothing but that for their entire family. Yeah. Well, going to the conversation, like how domestic violence is like very, it's very high. There's also statistics proving that like during quarantine, during the coronavirus, domestic violence has like, has rose up significantly. Like for example, in Detroit, they received 769 domestic violence calls for the past weeks of March. And that's like a 9% spike prior to like other weeks. So this this is like, yes, the book is also tying with that, but it's also important to acknowledge that it's an everyday, everyday thing and like everyone faces that. And it's just a very, like a heartbreaking thing that to think that people are going through this, especially women, or like just knowing that they're involved in a very toxic relationship is kind of scary. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's like one of those things to where like, how you mentioned it's like happening so much and you know obviously we're aware of it but the conversations are not there and we can also kind of see that throughout the book where like you know people in that community know what happened and you know they're kind of like you know there's a couple of scenes where Joe's like he's encountering with someone that that knows what happened to his mother but they are also like being kind of overly friendly with joe or just trying to sympathize but there's like there there's just not like a real way to show support so it's like how how can someone know how to be there when there's you know the lack of conversations that these things are happening and what are we going to do how can we help and how do we help someone at home that's dealing with it and Fortunately for us in Chicago, there's, you know, a couple of resources that we have, uh, specifically one that we have as a guest for today's show, which was Mujeres Latinas en Acción. um, They're an organization here in Chicago, and they talk a little bit about their services in our interview, but I think it's important to have those type of resources where that are available to victims and to their families, as um, we saw that effect in the book. But yeah, let's go ahead and go on a small break so we can come back and listen to this amazing interview that we had with Andrea Carrillo from Mujeres Latinas en Acción. She's a sexual assault community educator, and this interview is great. So let's go ahead and take a small break and come back right to that. Craving 
smoke that clouds of shadows that keep leaking out your house. You throwing daggers at the crown, this liquor falling from your mouth. I spit on silk to find the silver in the slivers in your couch. I'm coming out. How many more times you gotta keep saying this, but stay home. Staying home prevents the risk of contracting COVID-19 as well as spreading COVID-19. If you are planning to go outside, only go for necessities like groceries and such. Parties and other gatherings are not a good idea. You will risk your health as well as other people if you do that. Don't be that person. Stay home and stay safe. My name is Andrea Carrillo. I am a prevention educator at Mujeres Latinas en Acción Sexual Assault Program. Andrea, we know that you are part of Mujeres Latinas en Acción. I wanted to just start off with the general question of what is the mission of Mujeres Latinas en Acción and what kind of services do you all offer? Mujeres' overall mission is to advocate for the different groups that are included in Latinx communities. And this is done through different ways. Um, we have programs that support different aspects of like social advocacy. So we have a program that's called Empresarias del Futuro, which is like kind of like CEOs of the future. This is specifically to help like people improve themselves financially, economically. We have a community engagement department that's kind of mobilizes the community, works a little more with like local groups and organizations as well at, at a state level occasionally in the ways that we can. Um, we also have a parent support group, which helps people or helps parents, give them, gives them like a little more guidance if they feel that they need it as well as a domestic violence and sexual assault program, which provides mental health services and advocacy for survivors. Thank you. So we know that also that Pérez Latina has been around for a long time, since mm -hmm. 1975, in the community. And we were wondering how have the services impacted the community then versus now, since mm -hmm. time has been changing? From my understanding, because I wasn't around in the 1970s, it started off as like really small, like a pretty small group of women obviously trying to make an impact in their community, doing different things. One of the big things was they noticed there was an issue of like domestic violence within the Latinx community. And they also realized that that wasn't like the only thing that Latinx communities needed assistance with. So over time, they sort of developed like different programs. And I know one big thing that I find really cool that maybe we can transition into having, maybe not necessarily our org, but at a local level is like, they'd have grant parties to help gather rent for like people living within the community. So I, I think that just like shows us how this wasn't just something that began as like a distance organization. You know, they really tried to make an effort to to help community members like at a more local level. How has like the organization advocates evolved? Like how has it like changed throughout the years? One big thing that I have understood is that it's become more widespread. So it's not just Latinx communities anymore, and it's not just women anymore. There's like an effort to push for more inclusion, obviously. I think our overall like audience who we're serving, who we're working with, but also understanding that like we need to work from, if we have a problem within our community, we need to like attack it from different sides, right? Like when it comes to like community violence or economic issues, there's not just like one factor. 
that affects them, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of different factors. So I think getting those problems from the roots has become really important. And over time, and like with definite help from like funding and other community organizations, we've been able to do that. And like, who can seek services with your organization? It's open to anyone really. It just so happens also because of our name and the history it has, like the majority of the people that do come happen to be Latinx women. A lot of them happen to also identify as like immigrants from other countries. They are primarily in the West and South sides of Chicago, though that doesn't mean that we're not open to having like men and gender non-conforming folks as well. It just so happens that that's the majority of our of the clients that we get. And so what types of help or resources do you offer these men and women who um, need them? Mm -hmm. So I can speak for these two because I'm actually part of the sexual assault program. But one big thing that we offer is mental health services. We know that there's a gap in mental health services in like a lot of lower income communities. But these are specific to survivors of domestic violence and survivors of sexual assault, as well as their significant others. We also provide prevention programming, which means we go into schools, into community groups, and sort of teach them what healthy relationships might look like to help people identify the factors that are the red flags that may lead to like sexual assault or domestic violence, showing people what does and doesn't affect like a healthy relationship. We have child therapy too. We have through our other programs, we have like support groups, we have leadership programs. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And can you tell us what are some of the stigmas that victims experience when they come for help and ways that we can avoid that and overcome that? Yeah, so there are a lot. I think at least uh, that some things that affect people from coming for help in the first place is maybe thinking that they may not be believed, which is like something that stops a lot of people from even identifying that they experience sexual violence or domestic violence. So the fear of not being believed, the fear of being blamed, and that's not even like an irrational fear. It's very valid because unfortunately, we don't always believe our survivors. There's also the fact that we work with a lot of undocumented folks, Thinks makes people believe that they have to be documented in order to seek services, which is not true. Those are just a couple. There's like a huge list of stigmas that I'm sure affect people coming and seeking help. As part of the partnership with Big Read with the Roundhouse book, what inclined you all to work with this particular book? Yeah, so I will also tell you guys I started pretty new here. So I think one big thing was the fact that there's a push for not necessarily like literacy, but we do know that not everyone like has the time or the ability to like do things like join a book club, which we see in like a lot of particular communities. You know, we don't see this a lot in like lower income communities. There's not always time for relaxation or like the luxury of getting to explore your interests more, especially when you're working class or have like a differed immigrant status. So I think that was one big thing that I think affected our decision to take part in this. Also, what parallels did you see between the situation in the roundhouse and real life cases of assault? Yeah, there are a lot. So I'm going to assume everyone here has read the book, right? So I don't give you spoilers. Okay. So in the book, when the mother, Geraldine, was assaulted, she doesn't want to identify until much later who the perpetrator was. 
And that's something that's pretty common among survivors because one thing that really affects them coming out as a survivor is like the power dynamics between the perpetrator and the survivor. Because in this case, at least, she feared for her life among other issues that she was having. But we also know, and something that we see a lot with survivors is that the perpetrator tends to be someone that they're very close to. So it's not usually like stranger danger or like a situation where it's someone a little distant from them. The majority of sexual assaults happen to be perpetrated by someone that the survivor is close to. And that's a big parallel is that there's always like a very complex power dynamic between a survivor and a perpetrator. And that affects how they're going to come out, how they're going to seek services, and eventually how they're going to heal from this. What are like things that the public should educate themselves like when dealing with issues of sexual, domestic, or gender violence? There are a lot of things that people kind of need to check themselves on because I think one way or another, like maybe at some point in our lives, we've forced a lot of like beliefs that we've had about survivors. So I think we definitely need to learn to identify like why we have certain stigmas against survivors, which eventually affects like or maybe puts even puts people in danger of being sexually assaulted. But also on the other hand, like we do need to do more like preventative work, which means identifying the factors that affect like how likely someone is going to be put in a position of being sexually assaulted. So teaching them what a healthy relationship might look like, teaching them how to identify the signs that might lead to sexual or domestic abuse, teaching them that how interpersonal violence happens. And again, going back to like the power dynamics, like noticing, at least when we see other survivors outside of ourselves, how it's not always easy for someone to come out with their story. So yeah, there's definitely a lot that needs to happen in prevention and and fighting against the stigmas that allow survivors to heal. And like, how can we all support each other in like certain cases like that? So anything as simple as supporting your friend when they tell you that they've been through something like that, like showing empathy towards them, obviously reinforcing the idea that you believe them no matter what. It can be as small as like letting someone know that you believe them to something bigger like where if you see a case like letting someone know what you're seeing if that's appropriate for the situation at least also going back to like the idea of prevention like knowing what does and doesn't lead to sexual assault and what healthy relationships look like because that's so important and so considering that the roundhouse talks not only about the victim themselves but also how the family is dealing with the situation and how you know the family dynamic changes as the story goes along how would you say that the organization also provides services for the family members of the victims and not only the victims themselves yeah for sure we do provide counseling to the significant others of survivors are the non-offending significant others because sometimes sig- significant others are the perpetrators of the sexual assault. We do have like counseling groups for them. They also have individual counseling sessions because it's obviously something pretty intense to go through. So we do provide counseling for them as part of our prevention work. We also have like workshops that help people 
learn more about the trauma that a, a survivor may have experienced and how that may affect them, not just like mentally, but physically, socially as well. So yeah, we provide counseling groups and we do not necessarily prevention work in that aspect, but teaching them about what they may have gone through if they can't hear it from the survivor directly. And how can we begin to open up these difficult conversations like within our communities that are often like thrown in the shadows and not really spoken openly about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a big one. One thing is we have to make sure that we're providing safe spaces for these people to speak. So for example, if I'm a survivor and I want to share my story, but I hear that, you know, maybe you're making some comments that are sort of like slut shaming or victim blaming, like I'm not going to feel comfortable going to you, right? Because I think survivors tend to come out when they feel supported or they feel like it's a safe environment for them to speak about what happened to them. So creating safe spaces for them and everything from the conversations that we're having to even like the policies that we may have that puts them in a protected position. So what are the responses of people who attend the workshops that the organization provides? Yeah, so that varies depending on who we're giving the workshops to. Typically, if I'm giving a workshop to like high school students, maybe like there may be some disclosures of information, but that might be a good thing because it means they're comfortable sharing what's happening to them. There's also situations where even if they aren't survivors of something, like they're learning to identify things that aren't healthy for them in relationships, because I think that's part of the preventative work is learning what is and isn't okay for you to accept and what may or may not do you harm. Another reaction that we get is sometimes a little bit of confusion, uh, because I think if we're talking to someone that's from a completely different culture, grew up in a very different way, then, you know, maybe a lot of you all grew up, it's hard for them to comprehend why someone may even come out with their story, because a lot of them have the mentality that that's, that's something that needs to be kept in the dark. But in that there's also the acknowledgement that it's something that's common. So there's like sometimes a little bit of a confusion. And also that that might have to do with them even being survivors themselves, because they've learned to process something that happened to them a certain way. And telling them that that's not necessarily healthy in a way might shift their world completely. But that's where we have to like provide resources and mental health and support group and teaching them that, you know, whatever they want to do with their story is like up to them and it shouldn't be dictated by, by groups around them. Like for our youth, can you give us a sign of an, like, of an unhealthy relationship or like what a healthy relationship looks like? Yeah. And just because something's unhealthy doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically abusive. It just means that this isn't something that might help you grow, maybe. But an unhealthy, a sign of an unhealthy relationship is lack of boundaries. I know we talk a lot about consent in our prevention workshops. So if, you know, you're having some sort of a sexual interaction with your partner and they're not respecting your boundaries, even if they play it off as like a joke or you know, something well-intentioned, like they're still not respecting your boundaries. That's definitely a sign of something that's unhealthy. There's lack of boundaries. There's definitely dismissiveness or like lack of good communication because if someone's dismissing your concern, that's sort of a lack of respect because typically in a healthy relationship, you want to have some form of respect from your partner. So those are by far the biggest ones is boundaries and respect, which make up 
a lot of healthy relationships. How has like the organization changed since the beginning of the stay at home order? And like, how has it been providing services right now? So we provide a lot of the same services. It's just done over the phone, like a lot of organizations do. We have counseling services that we do over the phone. Like people can still come in as new clients. Everything has to be either done over the phone or over video, pretty much. Since we're not necessarily like healthcare providers, we can't physically interact with people. That's the biggest thing is everything's over the phone or computer. So the services are pretty much the same. The big exception to that is in our sexual assault program when we work with five hospitals and when those five hospitals report that there's a sexual assault, we typically send an advocate, which is either our staff or one of our volunteers, and they cannot do that at the moment. So that's also over the phone, but it's up to the discretion of the survivor to have an advocate speak to them over the phone. And also, uh, where can we go for resources to stay safe in regards to like these topics just for people to know where they can reach out? At least I, I can advocate for our program and say that if you feel like you want to speak to someone regarding at least like a sexual assault, you can 100% come in to our centers. You, once this is over, you can also call for now, though. Um, if you believe that you've experienced sexual violence or domestic violence, at least in like the other aspects of the book, kind of thing, I don't know what other resources off the top of my head from other organizations, but for us, you can 100% seek mental health services, there are support groups. Thank you so much for that. And just to kind of finalize it and tracing it a little bit back to the book, what was the biggest thing that we can learn from this book? or some of the topics that were super big in the book? There are a lot of really big topics in the book, really important ones. Uh, even if we're not like Native American, like a lot of the people were in this book, uh, we can identify with a lot of them in the sense that maybe there are some folks that might be Latinx that also face issues of like discrimination or higher rates of sexual assault. Some big themes in the book for sure were gender-based violence, um, lack of indigenous rights. There's a little bit of like generational trauma. There's concern about protections from a government or law enforcement that they might feel in the book that maybe some people might feel in real life as well. There's a lot going on. Yeah. It's like a very layered cake. There's a lot of themes in this book. There's also the idea that the main character, Joe, after he like began to understand what happened to his mom, it's almost like he began to grow up right away. So the idea of like having a good childhood or a third childhood and how that might be affected when your circumstances change. So who gets to have or really enjoy their childhood is another big theme too. Hey guys, welcome back. Don't forget that you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. That was just an interview with Mujeres Latinas en Acción. And now I'm going to read one last excerpt towards the end of the book just to start our last and final conversation. So he was sipping water reading yesterday's Fargo Forum. Mom walked downstairs. She was wearing black pants and a pink t-shirt her hair was fluffy and tinted to a shiny darkness. She wore black and pink beaded earrings and her feet were bare. I saw she'd painted her toenails. There was a subtle coloring of makeup, her features more dramatic. 
and that light lemon lotion as she passed by. I got close to her, stood behind her as she opened the door and accepted the familiar foil brick. She was dressed up for dad. I wasn't too dumb to figure that out. She was looking nice to keep her spirits up. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Emmy. And yeah, just to wrap up our conversation, that interview with Mujeres Latinas en Acción with Andrea Carrillo was very informational, very much needed. And we were just talking about how as community members and people who are listening to this show, we can just try to create more awareness uh, around this conversation or at least respect each other and promote to respect each other's boundaries and limits, of course. Yeah, and definitely, um, you know, try to educate each other. And, you know, I think it's important to also be able to have a safe space where we can comment on each other's behavior or um, like give feedback on things that we can work on or things that we're not doing very well in to try to avoid these type of things happening and, you know, try to put an end to it. For sure. And I feel like it's the perfect time to talk about books like these, concerns like these, matters like these, because in a time like now, especially amongst youth, things like humor and jokes and rape culture, we can all like move past things like that. Those are things that aren't necessary and things that we need to grow from. And this book is a great resource and a great collection of just a literature that can help educate others on matters that concern a lot of youth. And yeah, I think that the book is great with that. Yes, and um, also just to throw some more resources out there, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is there's a phone number for it, and that's 1-800-799-7233. And then, Melissa, if you want to tell us the help on domestic violence in Chicago. Yes, it's 877-863-6338, which is a domestic violence help like hotline in Chicago. 877-863-6338. And again, the National Domestic Violence Hotline would be 1-800-799-7233. So if anybody needs that, those numbers are there and can be found online as well. Also, we just did an interview with um, Mujeres Latinas en Acción. So also use those resources. They're, I believe, free. So And they're yeah. still providing resources during... um this time of quarantine and of course obviously through like phone as as it was mentioned or um through video considering the pandemic so i know that you know this book had a lot of an intensity in a good way and a lot of different emotions but i think overall it was a really good book a lot if we learned a lot through it about different topics and like i'm happy that we were given this book for free to learn about it and enjoy it and get to talk about it also as a group it's it was a really good way to start conversations that were very much needed I definitely agree with that like I did enjoy the book because it didn't focus on one single issue like it focused on many it focused on like growing up like family dynamics like trauma sexual assault and also like finding oneself so it was a a very good book because it included like every aspect and I think that's how normal life is and really made it seem like it was something that I was experiencing with the character and it wasn't something like fictional 
I definitely appreciated that. And like, I appreciate it so much that I'm like, we're bringing awareness of these topics and now talking about it. And hopefully this could become something like that is more freely talked about and like not so not carrying that stigma. So yeah, I definitely appreciate like what that book provides for us and how it was also for the bigger topic because it, it's, it's a very influential book. It's like, it really makes you like reflect on, on stuff. Yeah. And definitely, I think it was really cool, interesting and refreshing to see a really hard topic like this told through the point of view of a young person. Definitely. It's something that us as young people have learned from, and it was a really good read to see how this this kid reacted to the situation and how not only his mother healed, but how his healing process was as somebody just growing up and, you know, learning the basics of the world. Yeah, I think this book also works really well, you know, as a platform to talk with other people about these, you know, about these situations that sometimes affect our own communities. You know, there's there are really hard topics to talk about. So if maybe you want you want to take a more like, you know, I guess lighthearted approach or kind of like an easy approach into these kinds of situations, you might take something like this book um, to kind of ease yourself into, you know, talking with someone about these kinds of things. Well, on a brighter note, this is the last show of the season. So any like surviving quarantine oh my goodness <laughs> yeah that was we really did this this season 13 has been like all quarantine that's really that is okey cokey spokey 13 what <laughs> yeah, we did that <laughs> like who y'all see any other young people grinding hustling like us in these times like we did that we're putting such a great name to youth like yes represent Yay. And so, um, we've yeah. been doing nine shows out of how many i'm not even sure but out of ten out of ten for quarantine like all quarantine so this has definitely been like a very new experience but we're happy and well we're appreciative that we're able to do this still even at our homes because you know even if we're facing a very tough time right now it's definitely good like to take your mind off stuff and hopefully if you're a listener here on the radio that you appreciate what we're doing because we appreciate what we're doing too and I don't know it's a it's a moment where we can all reflect and like stay more bonded with each other during these situations. So yeah. Yeah. And also considering that I'm, I'm happy we were able to do this show to do justice to the book and to the big read, considering that a lot of the events were canceled, but yeah. Awesome show y'all. This pandemic will not hold us back. We will continue to raise our voices, keep our concerns on the air and speak for the injustices of our communities and the love that we have for everybody. Harriet, talk. Oh my God. Okay. So let's close this right. You know, my name is Nine. My name is Melissa. I'm Adrian. And I'm Emmanuel. And don't forget that you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio 
broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. Thank you. Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, wee-snatching, Liddy Poppin' production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be twerking on our next one. Here in Lumpin' Radio. So stay tuned for our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, weave-snatching, highly amazing production. I hope that you were informed about the YOLO-licious parts of life and get your bag every Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at YOLO Cali, on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at YOLO Cali, or visit at yolocali.org for more. Oh, <laughs>